Well, last week we began to look at verse 4 and the question of who is Israel. Uh, Paul is deeply moved in his spirit. He's been brought to a place of uh, heavy burden and a continual grief in his heart that does not go away throughout his life. This is a burden that he has for his kinsmen, his brethren, according to the flesh, that is, those who are Israel by birth, natural descendants from Abraham. And he says it is to them that many privileges have been given. And we spent some time last week looking at, well, who is Israel and where did Israel come from in their history? And we spent some time in Genesis chapter 32 and we read about the occasion when Jacob was brought into a wrestling match with the angel of the Lord, God himself, um, causing this struggle with his man, marking him in his hip by putting his hip socket out of joint, and ultimately renaming him with a spiritual name, a name that represents a new relationship that God has brought him into, a covenant relationship where Jacob has effectively struggled or wrestled with God but has prevailed by God's grace. And so this name Israel is applied to him and to all his descendants. And we saw something of the way that Scripture delineates between uh, physical Israel and spiritual Israel. That theme will continue, no doubt, as we continue through Romans chapter 9, but we laid some groundwork last time for that subject. Then we began to look at the privileges that have been given to God's people. We started by looking at the adoption that Israel as a nation was declared to be the Son of God when God instructed Moses to go to Pharaoh saying, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And then the command was to let him go, that he may come out to the wilderness to worship the Lord. And we then looked at the glory, the glory that was revealed to Israel, the glory being the very name of God, who he is, his attributes. And, and of course, we see that God manifested himself in a visible way so that the people, all the people, could see something of the, the glory of God through this shining light, this brilliant cloud that led Israel during the day and as a pillar of fire that led them through the wilderness at night. And God revealed much of his glory in the redemption of his people, in bringing them out through a great exodus, in parting the Red Sea and providing for their every need in the wilderness and driving out the Canaanite nations before them. God showed his glory again and again, and yet we saw that it was only some who saw the real glory. Many saw the glory with their physical eyes, but they had no heart to perceive the real glory and understand it. And so that, again, is the, the cry of Paul for his people, that there are so many who have seen the glory and who have received his, his presence, and yet they didn't understand. Today we're going to continue looking at the privileges of Israel, and there are still several to go in verse 4. Uh, the next is the covenants. And, you know, as I was preparing for this week, 
I was planning on taking the covenants and the giving of the law at a minimum, and then as I got further into it, I just realized the covenants really deserves its own study. It's a massive topic in Scripture. It's just two words in one verse, but it's two words that have massive implications and massive importance. And it behooves us as the people of God to understand what these covenants are, what they were and what they mean. So we're going to spend our time today delving into that subject together. This area of of study that we're going to get into today is called biblical theology. Uh, That's not a study of the theology that we find in the Bible um, as such, but this is a, a defined branch of biblical study that deals with how we are to understand the Bible as one comprehensive whole. It's a a macro lens, it's a zoomed out lens of the Bible where the question is asked, how is it that God uh, has operated throughout redemptive history and how are we to put together all of the components that we find in these 66 books primarily through the means of covenant in order to understand God's dealings with his people? That is the subject of biblical theology, and it is an extremely helpful way of understanding Scripture because it teaches us the character of God over time. And if we understand God's dealings with his people throughout history, we now have a powerful tool to help prevent us from taking individual verses out of context and building doctrines upon them that are not scripturally supported. So biblical theology is really a check and a guard against misinterpreting Scripture at the micro level. So this macro level view is is very important for us to have. Within um, biblical theology, as I said, the, the primary way that we see God relating to his people throughout Scripture is by means of a covenant, a covenant. And so the question that we have to start with is, what is a covenant? And what we, when we look at the word, the word itself in the Greek is the word theathiki. It means simply a disposition, an arrangement, um, a contractual agreement, or a compact. Sometimes treaty is a word that's used for that. And what we see is that the covenants in Scripture are patterned after known covenants that were practiced in the ancient Near East. And there are a few different kinds of those covenants. Namely, the one that's important that we understand is that there is a covenant between two parties which are between two that are not equal. That was known as a suzerain-vassal treaty. It was a treaty that the suzerain, who was the, the great conquering king, would make with his vassal king or his client king, one who was subordinate to him, under him, um, and... That was the established relationship between these two parties, from the greater to the lesser. And the the elements of covenant that we see in Scripture are typically these. There is a a preamble where the parties are listed. You also have a a history that is rehearsed. In, In other words, these are the things or this is the thing that the greater has done for the lesser to deserve the loyalty of the lesser toward the greater. And then you have the obligations for each party. These are the stipulations of the contract that each party will perform. And none of this is without skin in the game, so to speak. There's there's 
penalties if the contract is not enforced. And so the way the contract is enforced or the covenant is enforced is there are blessings for obedience and there's curses for disobedience. And then as we see with many of the biblical covenants, there's a sign that's associated with the covenant as a way to remember the covenant and to look towards something greater that the covenant points to, that the sign of the covenant points to. So Paul starts with, or he states in verse 4, that one of these privileges is the covenants. And you'll notice that that is in the plural, covenants. And uh, as I was reading some commentary about this, William Hendrickson made this comment that there is some doubt as to whether this word, covenants, is plural or singular. And he points to an important papyrus with the, what's called the Vaticanus Bible. This was a, an early 4th century manuscript, um, which is considered highly reliable. And he points to that as well as several other witnesses that say covenant in the singular, not in the plural. And frankly, there is some confusion in this area with regard to trying to synthesize what the Bible teaches about covenant. Uh, some say that there are many covenants in Scripture. They would point to a covenant with um, Noah and with Abraham and with Israel and with David and with Messiah. And some even point to uh, a covenant with Adam in the garden. <clears throat> Others affirm that there are not many covenants, but there's actually just one great covenant. And then there's others who they point to the twofold division of Old Covenant and New Covenant. I mean, the most basic understanding that we have of our Bible is there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. Testament being another word for covenant. So, is there one covenant? Are there two covenants? Are there many covenants? What does the Bible teach? Well, the Bible teaches that there is one great covenant of God. And that covenant is a covenant of grace. And it's described as an eternal covenant. Eternal meaning that it exists outside of time. This covenant had no beginning, which is something we can't get our minds around. And therefore, it also has no end. And why? Because God himself is the giver of the covenant, and he himself is eternal. He has no beginning, and he has no end. The covenant of grace, this one great covenant, is distinguished from another covenant, which is called the covenant of works. And this would relate to man's attempt to obey God as creator. God, after all, created all things. And as the great suzerain himself, the one who owns all and made all, everything was made for his glory and everything is to be loyal to him. <clears throat> every creation and every creature. And that is when, when man in particular, the pinnacle of God's creation, is to obey God, it is stated for him in terms that he must obey. And so there is a covenant of works that was made with Adam at the beginning, with Adam and Eve, and we're going to look at that today. And that covenant is temporary. It's, it's not eternal as the one covenant is described but God's covenant is eternal and singular. And when God makes his covenant with different people throughout history, as with Adam and Noah and Abraham and David and with the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
What's happening is he's simply unfolding his one great eternal covenant, his great plan of redemption over time. See, this eternal covenant was known in the mind of God before anything was even made. God knew that his creation would fall into sin and that they would need redemption because they wouldn't be able to obey God on their own through a covenant of works. And so God throughout space and time reveals this great plan of redemption to his people. And as he unfolds the plan by way of this covenant, it's like the analogy of the dimmer on a light switch. He's simply raising the dimmer to be brighter and brighter because each successive covenant adds something more, some revelation that discloses more fullness of the glory of this great covenant of grace, this one covenant. So these are various aspects or, or sub-covenants, if you will, that all fit underneath. They're all subsumed under this great covenant of grace. Now, I want to show you some examples because this, this is really the best way to see this and this is what I was spending my time in this week. So I, I just want to share my Bible study with you and that's kind of what the aim is of the message for today. Um, I want to start with Genesis together with you. So if you would, turn to Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to look at the covenant that God makes with Adam and Eve. <clears throat> now, when you read Genesis, you're not going to find, this in this account of the garden, you're not going to find the word covenant here. The word covenant is not mentioned until later with Noah. But the elements of the covenant we do see here. And so as we look at... Um, God's covenant with Adam, what we first have to look at is Genesis 1.26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then he blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so, just in those couple of verses, we see that God makes provisions in his covenant with man. He says, Let us make man. And he makes man. He says, let him have dominion over every living creature. And then he says, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion. And so you have the provision of God and the command of God to do what it is he said to do. When we turn to Genesis chapter 2 and we look at verse 16, we especially see this notion of a covenant of works a response that is required from Adam. Look at verse 16 of chapter 2. Uh, verse 15, excuse me. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So here we have a very uh, clear uh, instruction from the Lord, you may freely eat of all the trees except for one. 
And in the day that you eat of that one, you will die. Surely you will die. And so there is the covenant. Obey and live. Disobey and die. Well, we know the rest of the story in in, uh, in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve do disobey God and they fall into sin. And what we have to understand is when Adam sinned, he sinned as the federal head and representative of the entire human race. And so when he sinned, every one of us sinned in him because we were all in his loins, yet unborn. And that really is the truth that we learned in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. That deals with this account, with Adam. When he sinned, we all sinned in him because he was our federal head and representative. But now we come to verse 15 of chapter 3, and we know that this is often called the Proto-Evangelion, that is the first announcement of the good news, the gospel, when the Lord says, and I will put enmity, hatred, between you, that is speaking to the serpent, and the woman, Eve, and between your seed, the serpent's seed, and her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so what is this? This is the beginning of the covenant of grace that God is disclosing in its most embryonic form to Adam and Eve. Though they have fallen into sin, yet there is hope because God is going to establish a cosmic struggle between Satan, represented by the serpent, and his offspring, and the woman and her offspring, And that offspring, that seed, is disclosed as a he. He. It's a man. And this seed, this man from the woman, will crush or destroy Satan, the serpent. He'll crush his head, and Satan will bruise his heel. This is the beginning of the covenant of grace disclosed. There is hope for mankind, though it looks so dismal at this point. And what we see is that even though man is cursed with death, in verse 19, for dust you are and to dust you shall return, Adam and Eve don't return to dust right away, do they? God gives them a period of grace. A period of grace. This is important to note because this is that necessary period for God to work his redemptive plan and to rescue his people. There is no opportunity if death is swift and immediate after sin. And then God does this wonderful thing where he, in verse 21, makes tunics of skin. He clothes Adam and Eve with animal skins, which tells us that death occurred. That God killed animals in order to clothe his people. And so what is he doing here? He's establishing a principle that the life of the innocent must be given for the lives of the guilty pair. There is a blood sacrifice that must be made in order for sin to be forgiven. Hebrews 9 verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so God was teaching that truth very early on here in Genesis chapter 3. And 
he is effectively replacing Adam and Eve's insufficient solution to dress themselves with fig leaves because of the shame that they experienced when they disobeyed God. And he instead clothes them with an adequate covering, which he alone provides. What a wonderful early picture of the covering that he provides us by his son, the perfect lamb of God, who was slain for sinners. And his clothing, his righteousness, is alone sufficient to adorn us so that we are saved from our sins. Arthur Pink commented on these garments of skin that God made for Adam and Eve in this way, which I thought was really insightful. He said, It was the first gospel sermon preached by God himself, not in words, but in symbol and action. It was a setting forth of the way by which a sinful creature could return unto and approach his holy creator. It was a blessed illustration of substitution, the innocent dying in the stead of the guilty. The skins are not described officially as a sign, but they sure function as a sign of this covenant with Adam, pointing to the need for this substitutionary sacrifice that can alone deal with their sin. And though this is, no doubt, a low point in the history of mankind, this is the great fall when he is plunged into sin and death, yet God is not going to leave the pinnacle of his creation his image bearers, in a state of sin. So he introduces elements of the covenant of grace, even here in the garden, to give hope. And he is going to unfold that promise through a series of successive smaller covenants and promises that all relate to this great glorious plan of God's eternal redemption. Now, come with me to Genesis chapter 6 and to the account of Noah, and this is the first time that covenant is officially used in the Bible in chapter 6. Look with me at verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace. Noah didn't earn grace. Noah found grace. God was gracious to Noah because he wanted to be gracious to Noah. And look at this covenant that he announces with him in verse 17 of chapter 6. And behold, I myself, God speaking, am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds of every kind, uh, excuse me, of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did 
according to all that God commanded him, so he did it. So God establishes his covenant. He announces he is establishing his covenant with Noah. He gives him instructions, and Noah obeys. He does what God prescribed. Now, when you come to chapter 9, we've now come through the great flood. God has flooded the earth and destroyed every living creature except those who were preserved in the ark. That is Noah and his sons and their wives, these eight souls. And we come to chapter 9. The waters have receded. God is um, now establishing his covenant officially with Noah in chapter 9 and verse 8. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with them saying, with him saying, And as for me, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth, and the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Now notice verse 16. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. This is an everlasting covenant. And what is it that God reveals through his covenant of grace in this passage? Well, he reveals that God will never again destroy the earth in a flood. That was a one-time act that he will never again repeat. And he puts his sign in the cloud, the rainbow, to confirm that promise. And what is his rainbow but his bow of war that he has hung upside down so that the bow is no longer facing the earth, but it is facing heaven? Why would God do that? God is establishing that he is going to give a period of grace, a day of salvation for mankind to be saved, opportunity for sinners to be saved. Because his bow of war is not pointed at the earth, but is pointed at heaven. That's interesting. What is it that God will do in order to save mankind, but send his beloved son? He will thrust that bow into heaven itself, into the Lord Jesus Christ, and not into man. And so this is God's pledge to Abram and really, excuse me, to Noah and to all living creatures, all those of flesh, that this is a period of grace, an environment of grace where he can work out his great plan of redemption. Then we come to Genesis chapter 12, and this is the account of Abram. And the eternal covenant is further unfolded now for us here. Abram is an idol worshiper from Ur, Ur of the Chaldees. He's a moon worshiper. He doesn't know the Lord at all. And God reveals himself to him. 
And he calls him out. Look what he says in Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what is God doing here? We don't have the word covenant quite until chapter uh, 15. But what we do have is the makings of the covenant. God is revealing himself to this pagan worshiper. And he calls him out of his present country and he promises him a good land. A land that he will show him. That God himself will show Abram. And then he promises to multiply him. That his seed would, would multiply and become a great nation. And he promises to bless him. That he himself would be blessed. He would have a great name. And that those who bless him would be blessed and those who curse him would be cursed. And that Abraham himself would be a blessing to others. And so Abraham goes. He goes as God commanded. And we come now to Genesis 15. Just forward a couple chapters with me. When God officially makes his covenant with Abram. Abram. And what God does here in Genesis 15 is he pledges himself to Abram. Listen to how he describes this in Genesis 15 verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. So God first pledges himself as Abram's protection and his great reward, his inheritance. And Abram is, is uncertain about God's promise from chapter 12 because we see that Abram says in verse 2, but Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Eliezer is a, a slave in the house who has been um, adopted as a child in order to be Abram's um, heir because he has no son. And, and this is a Mesopotamian custom that Abram knew he would have been familiar with. And he does this because God is seemingly delaying and fulfilling his promise of multiplying his seed, which of course requires that you start with one. <laughs> And then look at verse 4, um, or verse 3. Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven, and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And then this very, very important verse that you should circle and underline and highlight. And he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him. He credited it to him for righteousness. Abraham here is being taught that there is one way to be made right with the Lord. And that is simply to believe him. 
Those who believe God are credited with his righteousness. What did Abraham do, or Abram do? He simply believed God's promise. The promise that God would, in fact, multiply him and make him a great nation. And God illustrated that by having him look up. Look at the heavens. In other words, look to the Lord, but look at the stars that you see. Your descendants will be like them, innumerable. So Abram believes the Lord. And there's something else important that we learn there, that this way of becoming right with the Lord happens apart from any works of Abram. Abram doesn't do anything here except simply believe the message that God gives him. He believes the promise and is counted righteous. And then look at verse 7. Then he, God, said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and to inherit it. Abram, how do you know that I'm going to do this? The Lord just states his own name. I am the Lord. I am the eternal one, the self-existing one. I am the great I am that, is, that was disclosed to Moses later, right? The eternal covenant-keeping God. That should be enough, my word. But look what God graciously does to help his servant who is weak in faith. And he said, Lord God, Abram to to God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? God could have simply said, I I just said I would give it to you, right? Um, Or zap, I'm taking your life because you're not believing me. But he doesn't. He's gracious. And look what he does from verse 9 and following. So he said to him, God speaking to Abram, bring me a three-year-old heifer. A three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him to cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. This seems like a strange ceremony. And it is indeed to us who are not used to um, ratifying a covenant in the ancient Near East. But this was a common practice for ratifying a covenant. Animals were killed and divided in two. And look what happens now. Verse 12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, so Abram's now understanding this in a state of sleep. Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. That's a reference to the bondage in Egypt that's coming. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, and all the ites that you read throughout the rest of the section there to, to verse 21. So <clears throat> this ceremony that God performs, um, he is dividing, has Abram divide these animals and typically, the, the two parties that are coming together to bind a contract, a covenant, would walk between the 
dismembered animals. As if to say, if I fail to keep up with my part of the bargain, my obligation, so let happen to me what happened to these animals. But what happens in this account is God alone, as this burning torch, this smoking oven, passes between those pieces. And where is Abraham while this covenant ceremony is being ratified? He's asleep. He's only hearing of what is happening. He's receiving God's word, but he's not actually doing anything. And that's extremely important because here we have another unfolding, another great revelation of this eternal covenant of God. What is happening here? God is establishing that his covenant is not bilateral, but it's actually unilateral. It's one-sided. God himself is walking between the pieces and putting the emphasis here. This is what I am going to do for you. I am going to guarantee this covenant with myself. God is going to play both parties. His part and the part for Abram and for man. He will give Abram and his seed the land. We see that follow after a long bondage in Egypt. But God here is simply giving an oath. He's already given his word, his promise, I will do this for you. Abram says, how do I know you You will do this for me? And he says, here's the ceremony. Here's the oath, my promise that I will not break my word and I'm guaranteeing it by myself. And God is God. He cannot lie. He always is true. Now, we come to Genesis chapter 17. In chapter 17, we hear about the sign of the covenant. But before that, notice how 17 begins. When Abram was 99 years old. So, this happened in chapter 15 when Abram is somewhere between 75 and 85 years old. You come to chapter 17 and he's 99 years old. When Abram was 99, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. Stop there for just a moment. How can Abram, a sinner, walk before God and be blameless? That's not possible for somebody who is a sinner to be in the presence of God. They're not able to abide his presence and he doesn't care to abide their presence either. But this harkens back to the garden when Adam walked with God and had a relationship with him. Abram, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. Well, how can Abram do this? How can he be blameless though he's a sinner? Well, we read in chapter 15, verse 6, that Abraham was, Abram, excuse me, he wasn't quite renamed yet, was counted righteous simply by believing God. He was declared just in God's sight because of his faith in God, because he took God at his word. And so that is how God is able to have Abram walk before him and be blameless, without blame, because God himself has rendered him blameless. There is a righteousness that Abraham needs to receive. And that righteousness is going to be answered partially in Genesis chapter 22, when Abram offers up his son Isaac, and God tells him, It's not just in you that all the families of the earth will be blessed, but it's in your seed specifically. The Messiah, this seed, the the one who is coming from the woman back in Genesis 3, he is coming from your body, Abram. 
He is going to be the one who brings you righteousness. Look at uh, verse 2 of chapter 17. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you. And kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant. See, notice the same everlasting covenant is here. To be God to you and your descendants after you. Also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger. All the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. And then he explains that the sign of the covenant is circumcision. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. Everyone. The child who is eight days old will be circumcised. And everyone else in your household, whether he's naturally born in your house or whether he was purchased as a foreigner, every single one must be circumcised. And so what is it that God is teaching through this covenant of grace that he is revealing to Abram here? Well, he's teaching that it's possible to be blameless before God even though you're a sinner by trusting God, by believing his word. He's teaching that, um, that kings will come from this body, from his body. He's teaching that this covenant is an everlasting covenant. He's teaching that this land even is an everlasting possession. That tells you that it's not just a physical land he's promising. And then he's also teaching that there is a sign for this covenant circumcision, a need for a cutting off in the very place where the human race propagates. The link between sinful Adam and you as a son of Adam must be broken, must be cut off, and you must be cleansed there. And this is actually even a sign of you must be cleansed not in your flesh but in your heart, as we're going to see later. This is a work, this circumcision, that no man can do, that only God can do. Now we come to Genesis chapter 22 and the account of Abram offering up um, his son Isaac as a, an evidence of the faith that he had. And in verse 15, this is after Abram obeyed the Lord. He was about to kill his son. The Lord stops him from killing Isaac and the Lord says this in verse 15, The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn. That's a reference to his oath that he already showed in chapter 15. By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice and we know that from Galatians chapter 3 
Verse 6, just as Abraham believed God, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. This blessing that is going to come through Abraham, through his seed, will touch all the nations of the earth because they all, like Abraham, will share that same common faith in the Lord. And God will reckon each one of them righteous, righteous. So, God confirms the covenant he's already given through the last several chapters. And then he, he points to this one who is to come from Abraham's body. This ram who will be caught in the thicket that God is going to provide as his own sacrifice. And then God reaffirms this everlasting covenant to Abraham's children and children's children. He reaffirms the covenant to Isaac in chapter 26 of Genesis and then to Jacob in chapter 28. And what we learn as we read the accounts, I'm not going to do it right now, I commend it to you, but what we learn from those accounts is that God's covenant does not come through every physical descendant of Abraham. It comes to Isaac and not Ishmael. It comes to Jacob and not Esau. God's covenant comes through a specific line. It is a promised line, not a physical line. It's a spiritual line, not only a physical line. Psalm 111 this morning, Pastor Stan read it, just verse 5, He has given food to those who fear Him. He will ever be mindful of His covenant. God will ever be mindful of this great covenant. He, he doesn't forget anything. But when you hear about God remembering his covenant, he's constantly calling it to mind because this is his eternal purpose that he is bringing to pass and unfolding for his people. Psalm 111, verse 9, He has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. This is a covenant of redemption. Of redemption. Now, when we get to Exodus chapter 2, Israel's been in bondage for 400 years, and God has begun to carry out his promise to Abram of multiplying his seed exceedingly, hasn't he? The 70 persons that go down to Egypt and are later enslaved become 600,000 men on foot, plus women and children, a vast company, <clears throat> but they are in bondage. And this bondage is hard. And so they collectively call upon the name of the Lord for relief. And you read that in Exodus 2, verse 23. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage. And they cried out. And their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. And so what happens now is that God calls his man Moses and he raises him up to be the deliverer of his people Israel. And we read from Exodus 7 and following that God brings these ten great plagues on Pharaoh and all of Egypt to demonstrate his great power and also to harden Pharaoh's heart as he prepares to bring the people out. And then in chapter 12, we have the account of the Exodus where God actually brings his people out of Egypt and he brings them out to the wilderness and they take a journey for three months' time and they then come to Mount Sinai in chapter 19. 
In chapter 19, I just want to read this account for you because this now is the account of the covenant with Moses and the people of Israel at Sinai. This is another instance of a covenant being described in the Scripture. Exodus 19, In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out from the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephidim and come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, notice this, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud and the people that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. So what's very important to note in this section here is that we have these promises that are made by the Lord to the people, but they're all made conditionally. There is an if-then statement here. God's promises to make this people a special treasure to him above all the people and to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation are all contingent upon this verse 5. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be. You are not if you don't do that, but if you do, you are. There's a bilateral nature to this agreement between Israel and God. And what is their response? We will obey. We will obey everything that the Lord has commanded. That's interesting that they say that even before they've heard what the law is that they are to obey. That tells you that there's some presumption there on their part, some pride. And then this very important thing in verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And he says, you, you will set bounds and no one is allowed to touch this mountain because if anyone does, he will be put to death. What is God doing here? He's, he's instructing that there is a ceremonial washing that is required before they can receive God's law and obey it. They must be cleansed. And God gives them the He gives them the ceremony so that they think, you need to be cleansed before you can come into the presence of holy God. You are sinful as a people. You cannot receive his law nor obey it if you are unclean. 700 years after Moses, Jeremiah makes this statement to Israel in chapter 4, verse 14. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from wickedness that you may be saved. How long shall your evil thoughts lodge within you? See, God is intimating here 
that a clean heart is what is required in order to obey God's law as he desires. The, law, the, the heart must be engaged so that the person obeys not just the letter of the law in, in a way that they think they're fulfilling the law, but the actual spirit of the law that God intended. So Israel agrees to this covenant. And then the covenant is given, this law is given in chapter 20. And I want you to just notice, I'm not going to read the Ten Commandments, but notice how he starts this. And God, Exodus 20, spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Then he gives the Ten Commandments. Why does he do it that way? He is instructing Israel, <laughs> this law that I'm giving you is not a means of salvation. I've already saved you. I've brought you out of Egypt. Now, keep this law, a perfect reflection of my holiness, in gratitude toward me for what I've done for you already. The law was never given as a means of salvation, and Israel got that wrong. The law was to be an expression of gratitude for what God had already done for them. And the law is also given as a way to maintain this covenant relationship that God has called them to. Again, Exodus 19.5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, or Jesus, if you abide in my word, continue, then you are my disciples indeed. Then you shall be to me a special treasure above all the peoples of the earth. But Moses also reveals another important purpose of the law in verse 20 of chapter 20. After the law is given, the people have experienced the phenomena which are frightening to their senses, the thunders, the lightnings, the sound of these loud trumpet blasts. Verse 20, And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. The purpose of the law is to probe your hearts, to see if you have the fear of the Lord before your eyes. This is a holy law. This should instill fear in the heart of a sinner. How am I to keep this? So the law really, we see here in this kind of embryonic form, it, it functions as a, a mirror to show the sinner who he is as he really is a sinner. It also functions, you could think about it as a magnifying glass to, to, to look at the stains that are on us that we don't see with our physical eyes. It brings all those into sharp focus. Or as a loudspeaker that amplifies the sin that was previously quiet to our ears or maybe we didn't hear it at all. The law brings all of that up to test their hearts that they might fear God. Deuteronomy chapter 4 um, just listen to this description of what the law does, why God allows the people to hear his law. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9, Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. And teach them to your children and your grandchildren, especially concerning the day you stood before the Lord your God in Horeb, that's Sinai, 
When the Lord said to me, gather the people to me and I will let them hear my words that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. There is the purpose of the law, to teach the fear of the Lord to his people, that they would not depart from him, that they would serve him and that they would honor him for the great salvation he has brought them. And as part of God's law, we know that he gave a sacrificial system, uh, prescribed ordinances for dealing with their sin because God knew that they were not able to keep this law. And so he gives them a sacrificial system uh, that they would be reminded time and time again, year after year, that the blood of bulls and goats cannot actually take away your sin. These are just types and shadows. These are just a picture of a greater sacrifice that must be made that can deal with your sin once and for all. That's also taught in this embryonic form, in this covenant at Sinai. And we come to chapter 24 of Exodus, and the people affirm the covenant again, and God, through Moses, ratifies the covenant in a ceremony with blood. In chapter 24, verse 3, So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said, we will do. So very much like what they said in Exodus 19. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. Stop there for just a moment. This, what is this book of the covenant? Well, the book of the covenant is what we read from Exodus 19, this preamble or, or promise of a covenant that God would give to the people that's abbreviated there. Then it includes the Ten Commandments that you have in, Deut- in uh, Exodus chapter 20. And then the expansion of the Ten Commandments, or the Decalogue, from the end of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, verse 18, all the way through the end of chapter 23. All of that is expansion of the Ten Commandments, and that's all combined together and called the Book of the Covenant. And Moses reads that Book of the Covenant to the people, and they say, we will do all of it. We'll be obedient to that. And the covenant's ratified with the blood of bulls, with animal blood. It's sprinkled on them, just like that ceremony that in Genesis 15, there was a shedding of blood to ratify a covenant. We see it again here in Exodus. Now, very important, verse 8 of chapter 24. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Question. What are all these words? It includes all the words of the book of the covenant, of course, but it also includes their response. We will do all of this and obey. So God makes a covenant with them 
according to all these words. That's the covenant he makes with them. And the question is, is this the covenant of grace that he made with them here in Exodus 24, verse 8? And there's been confusion about that. Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. If you're okay going a little bit longer today, I just want to finish this out with you. It's, I, I trust it'll be helpful by God's grace. Um, Deuteronomy 5. Look at verse 2. Uh, or verse 1. And Moses called all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your hearing today, that you may learn them and be careful to observe them. This Deuteronomy is, is when Moses is old and he's ready to pass the baton to Joshua to take the people of Israel into the promised land. And they're standing on the plains of Moab about to cross over the Jordan when this instruction is given. So this is looking back, okay, to Sinai. Verse 2, the Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb, Sinai. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, those who are here today, all of us who are alive. The Lord did not make this covenant with the fathers. This covenant that we just read about in Exodus 24, that's a different covenant from the covenant made with the fathers, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is described as the eternal covenant. This, in Exodus 24, according to all those words, is not described as that covenant, that eternal covenant. Um, look at chapter, er, verse 23 of chapter 5. So it was when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire that you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Surely the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his, his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God speaks with man, yet he still lives. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore. Then we shall die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? You go near, speaking to Moses, and hear all that the Lord our God may say and tell us all that the Lord our God says to you and we will hear and do it. Then the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me and the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people. <laughs> By the way, when God says this people, that's not usually a good thing. He's not saying my people. He's saying this people, which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Verse 29, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments that it might be well with them and with their children forever. Alarm. There's a problem. They don't have the heart to do what God has commanded them to do. God says, oh that, oh, that they had such a heart that they would fear me and always keep my commandments. That's why they went astray. They didn't have a heart to love the Lord or obey the Lord. Brothers and sisters, why is it that people can profess to know the Lord and to follow him for a time and then seem to just fall off the map? Because they have no heart for the Lord. They have no love for him. They've never been born again. In Deuteronomy chapter 29 now, fast forward with me to the end of Deuteronomy. 
Look how Deuteronomy 29 starts. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab besides the covenant which he made with them in Horeb, in Sinai. So what follows here is a description of the covenant that is besides, it's in addition to the covenant that God made with his people at Sinai. And so what he's going to do now is he's going to begin to explain and unravel the covenant here. Look at verse 2. Now Moses called all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials which your eyes have seen, the signs and those great wonders, yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. And I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn out on your feet. You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or similar drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And when you came to this place, he, he then describes these kings that he drove out before them. And look at verse 9. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them. Keep the words of this covenant, the one that's beside the covenant that was made at Horeb, and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. And the question you have to ask is, how are they going to do this? How are they going to enter into this covenant of grace given their problem, which is they have not received a heart to understand from verse 4? All of you, verse 10, stand today before the Lord your God, your leaders and your tribes and your elders and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, also the stranger who's in your camp. Verse 12, that you may enter into covenant with the Lord your God and into, notice this, his oath, his promise, which the Lord your God makes with you today, that he may establish you today as a people for himself and that he may be God to you just as he has spoken to you and just as he has sworn to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I make this covenant and this oath not with you alone, but with him who stands here today as well as with him who is not here with us today. And then he goes on to describe in verse 18, so that there may not be any among you whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations. So, this people still hadn't entered into the true covenant yet is the big revelation here. They've not entered into the covenant because God is saying that you may enter into this covenant today. The true covenant. You say, how are they going to do that? Well, Moses gives the answer in chapter 30. This is after those who have broken God's covenant are judged and they're exiled from their own land. God's going to scatter them to the nations of the world. Here's what's going to happen in, after that time. Chapter 30, Now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. 
If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. And then note this in verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. This is a description of this covenant of grace. Is obedience required in the covenant of grace? Yes, it is. You must obey the Lord. But the question, loved ones, is what prompts the obedience? And the answer has to be a new heart from the Lord. It's his work of giving you the new heart that prompts you to obey him out of a heart of love and gratitude for what he's done for you. His work, in other words, is what enables our work. That's an important concept. And our work of obedience is his work of grace carried out in us. So, was the covenant at Sinai the covenant of grace? And this is what I realized as I was in the study. The words of the Lord are all his eternal covenant. Why? Because Psalm 119.89, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. His word is eternal. It doesn't change, just like he doesn't change. His covenant is eternal. It's forever settled in heaven. But the issue is this. How man enters the covenant determines whether it's a covenant of grace or a covenant of works. I'm going to repeat that. But the issue is how man enters the covenant determines whether it's a covenant of grace or a covenant of works. If a man promises to keep the covenant but he has no heart to love God. He has the stony heart that's a, a vestige from Adam. He turns the covenant, the eternal covenant, into a covenant of works for himself. Because he's doing it in his own strength. He's effectively saying what Israel said in Exodus 19 and 24, we will do this, we will obey the Lord completely. And when he breaks the covenant and he does not repent of his sin because he feels no sensibilities for his sinfulness, the law for him has not magnified the sin in his, in his life and brought him to his knees. And he tries instead to keep the law in his own way so that he can say, I'm, I'm earning my righteousness. I'm, I'm finding a way to keep God's law. But in fact, he's only keeping the letter and not the spirit. He remains under the law and the covenant of works. He remains there. In fact, he's never left the garden in that sense. That's where Adam started with a covenant of performance. And everyone born from Adam is born to perform just like Adam did, but he can't. He's condemned. That's why it's a, a curse to be under the law. And that's exactly the position that Israel after the flesh was in. That's the connection now with Romans 9.4. This is why Paul's grieving. The covenants were given, and yet Israel was trying to obey without a heart for God. And so they were, they were just 
They were missing the whole point, and they were just heaping up condemnation upon themselves. But, here's the contrast now. If a man, like we just read in Deuteronomy 30, if he recognizes his sin, that he's broken the covenant of works that he thought he could keep, and he considers the curse that God has brought upon his sin, which in Israel's history later would be exile out of their land into foreign lands. But for the church today, it's a spiritual exile. We've been separated from our God and his wrath abides on us. And if we recognize that the Lord is in fact a Savior who is able to deliver us just like he did when he brought Israel to the mountain from Egypt, and we repent and turn to the Lord with all our hearts. And we obey the Lord and believe the Lord in faith like Abraham did because we are prompted by a love for God in our hearts. All enabled by God's gracious work in our hearts. You see the difference? Then he has effectively ceased from the work of man and he's entered into the work of God. And that's how he enters the covenant of grace. He must cease from the work of man and recognize, I can't do this, but Lord, you can. And the fact that I see my sin and I'm repenting of my sin and coming to you in faith and I want to obey you because I hate my sin itself is the evidence that God has done a work of grace in your heart. He's already brought you into the covenant. So this covenant of grace is evidenced through the actions of God's people. And that's what the true Israel did. That's what the spiritual Israel within the physical national Israel did. So it is the same eternal covenant, brothers and sisters, that's presented throughout the Bible. It's one covenant. It's very simple. But the question is, are men entering into that covenant with God through their works? Or are they entering by God's works? Repentance, faith, Love for God, obedience. Those who enter by God's works are no longer trying to earn righteousness by the law. The law for us becomes what it was intended to be, that expression of gratitude and response for knowing the Lord has delivered me. He's brought me out of spiritual Egypt because he's delivered me with the greater Moses, Jesus Christ. He is the Savior, and I now see that. Friends, have you entered into the Lord's covenant of grace by His works? That's the question. Or are you still trying to earn your own way? By the way, God gave a sign for the Sinaitic covenant, the covenant at Sinai. You know what that was? The Sabbath. The Sabbath. And what was the sign of the Sabbath pointing to? a perpetual weekly reminder that the people need to rest from their works. That's not to say that they need to stop working and become lazy, but that they need to stop trying to earn righteousness with God. That was the point of what God was teaching with the reminder of the Sabbath. The curse from the garden is you're going to toil hard, Adam. You're going to work by the sweat of your brow just to get food from the ground, just to survive in this earth. But the blessing of God is rest. Rest. Not just one day a week as the sign prescribed, but a constant state of rest for your soul where you've come to the Lord in repentance and faith 
and you found that you're saved by his work and not yours. And now your conscience is free because you no longer have to try to earn anything with God. And all of your dead works have been washed away. This is the eternal covenant. This is the same covenant that Abraham entered into and Isaac and Jacob and all of the saints throughout history. This is the wonderful blessing of the covenant. God has sent his son to be our savior. He's the promised one. And I just want you to hear Galatians 3 as we close. Galatians 3 verse 10, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. What's the blessing of Abraham? Righteousness. Justification. You have been made right with God by faith and not by your works. And that comes through faith in the seed of Abraham, who Paul says explicitly in verse 16 is Christ himself. Christ himself. And then verse 26, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ. And verse 29, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. God has fulfilled his promise in Christ. He's the fulfillment of the covenant. He's the one who gives himself, pledges himself as the fulfillment of God's own covenant. We're going to look at that more next time, Lord willing. I'm sorry we went so long. I wasn't intending to go this long at all. In fact, there's more to the covenant discussion than we even covered this morning. There's the covenant with David and there's the covenant with Messiah. And so I, I hope to cover those with you next time. Just to begin a, a process of understanding more by God's grace, what are these covenants? How is he related to his people? And where's our trust? At the end of the day, it's in the Lord. God alone ensures salvation. He is the author of our faith. He's the finisher of our faith. That's the message. He's a great God. We worship him. Put your trust in the Lord and be blessed. Let's pray. Father, um, I feel like I've said a lot this morning. I just want your word to be heard. Would you please speak to the hearts of your people, nourish the faith that you've given them, Lord, and cause them to grow. Father, cause all of us to rejoice in you as we learn about your glory. Your glory is revealed in the covenant and your faithfulness, Lord, to endure from generation to generation. Your promises will never fail because you yourself ensured them. Your Son is the great promise keeper, and we are the beneficiaries. Lord, what can we do but live our lives in gratitude and thanksgiving to you? We love you, Lord, and we now recognize that that is not a native love, that's a, a foreign love that you've given us because you've changed our hearts. Help us, Lord, to love you more. Help us to express that love and obedience, a pattern of following you all our days. And Lord, when we do sin, 
after we recognize that we have sinned and fallen short and that your wrath was on us, Lord, we've turned to you as our healer, as the, the Savior who alone can deal with our sin. Thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness, your enablement in our lives. Lord, we are dependent on you for everything. We are truly your children, and you are our Father. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.